welcome to the fifth episode of News Relations podcast Extraordinary where we aim to amplify personal stories of individuals with autism in the Indian context and also hope to spark a conversation around it After conducting extensive research for nearly a year our team sought to gain a deeper understanding of the experiences of neurodivergent individuals We are immensely grateful to all the participants who have entrusted us with their personal and insightful stories. These narratives serve to educate neurotypical people about autism. The series is a result of dedicating a significant amount of time to engage with our subjects who have courageously shared their struggles and triumphs with us. I am your host Shiksha and our guest for today's episode is Dr. Bindya Shajib, a specialist in child psychology with extensive experience in helping children cope with a range of emotional and behavioral issues. I'm Bindya. I like to introduce myself as a child rights advocate because those are some things that I strongly believe in and try to you know make sure it reflects in my work recently a few of my friends and i got together and we started this non-profit organization called all inclusive foundation we want to make sure that the services provided to children who are neurodivergent should be in their natural spaces like schools or their homes so we see a lot of um, center based interventions that happen especially in india and especially in bangalore um we have a lot of centers that do you know speech therapy occupational therapy behavior therapy etc so what happens there is children are taken into an artificial environment where they are given therapy and you know they are trained in a certain way and what i have found in my work in the regular school environment is that a lot of these things that happen in these isolated segregated spaces don't necessarily translate into the child doing well at school so a lot of parents come to me asking for behavior therapy because they were referred from a school and i tell the parents see i can give all the therapy that i want in this setting where it is going to be just me and your child and that is like the safest environment most pleasant environment for the child because it is one on one and the child is very comfortable and there will be no behaviors here but the moment the child goes back into that school environment where there are other 25 to 30 children in the classroom and one teacher to support them there is bound to be a lot of behavioral difficulties because there are a lot of triggers that would you know make him have those behaviors in the classroom so we realized how important it is to intervene in a child's natural setting and then um there's this another parent chitra who i had been in touch with for many years and unlike the other parents i have worked with chitra has always had that you know neuroaffirmative approach to raising her child and in my work with chitra i have also learned a lot from her child like i i think of him as one of my teachers i remember chitra had told me about some of these conversations that she has with her son 
And there was this one conversation where he talks about why he enjoys school. It's just etched in my memory because it just changed a lot of things for me. So he says that I am seen on the same gear as other children. So basically what he's saying that he's not seen as different while he's there. And that was so important. I mean, you know, there, are, there was a lot of debate around that time around why should we include them. And to me, that was the answer. Like if a child wants to be in that environment, then the child should be there. Because a child has all the right to be there. But now I also have seen children who completely resist that environment also. Like when we push for inclusion, some of them tells me, not through words, but through their behaviors that I'm not okay here. I have people who have done all sorts of things to get out of that mainstream classroom. And we've done all sorts of things to try and include them there. And eventually when we gave up and took them into a special ed classroom is when they felt comfortable. And what I understand from that is sometimes they perceive people around them and they also realize that everybody else is doing, doing things better than I am. So maybe I'm not as good. And then they start evaluating themselves in comparison to the children around them, which makes it difficult for them to adjust in that environment, I think. I think in the recent past, we've gotten to this point where we are able to tell or we're able to diagnose autism as early as 15 months. Which means, you know, people start intervening as early as that, as soon as there is a diagnosis. So what happens is we do a lot of, we put a lot of emphasis on these skills. And occupational therapy, I see children are okay with it. They, because it's a lot of activity-oriented work. But when it comes to speech, I feel like there is this undue pressure on children because speech is inherently difficult for them. And we're taking them like twice or thrice a week to this place to remind them that you're not good at this. So please work on it. And I've seen children, I've literally seen them, you know, resist and cry and scream going into a speech therapy session. So I'm, I'm thinking that this the speech is again a lot of pressure on them. There is this readiness that children need to attain for any skill for that matter before they can start working on it or mastering it. It's just like, you know, you need to be ready to be able to walk. You can't start making a two-month-old walk, right? So what we realized is that a lot of children are being asked to speak and is given therapy to speak even when before they are ready to do that. So there are a lot of families who have given up over a period of time. Like, you know, they started it in early intervention, but the child did not speak around five, six. They're like, you know what, let's just wind this up and let's just focus on something else. Now, Chitra's son was one of them. And at around 10 years of age, when he started communicating, he actually told Chitra that, I want to speak. Imagine, all this child wants to do is speak. And then I also remember at that point, Chitra started taking him back to speech therapy. And at that point, he was even making more sounds. This was around 10, 11 years of age. He was able to make 
more sounds than what he did. But then, despite the fact, you know, some children are don't have that physiological ability to make speech happen, and and it's you know it doesn't work out for everyone. But the lesson I got from that is, we need to listen to the child. I think that was one of the major turning points for me, and then since then I have been a big proponent of asking the child what he or she wants. Right. So when parents come to me, they come to me with a lot of agenda. They want them to do this. They want them to do that. They want them. I'm like you know, let's slow down and let's evaluate to see is this a reasonable expectation for your child right now? I'm not saying later. I'm saying right now, because if it's not, then it is going to be a lot of pressure on the child and the other thing is let's also find out if this is what your child wants to do and which is also very important over a period of time since i started working with a lot of children um i've realized that sometimes when they are really young we've seen that it may not be autism it may be adhd for example but signs or characteristics at a very young age may look very similar so there are a lot of children who might get misdiagnosed as autism but may not be autistic and we would realize that once they grow in india what i see is now if i see that a child is showing some kind of developmental delay the only reason why i think a diagnosis is important there is for us to communicate better with the family because once the family has to so the family has to accept that there is a there is an issue or there is a delay in development and that delay in development may be consistent with this diagnosis and if it is this diagnosis then these are some measures that we would do we would take to support this child so we have a lot of families who come to us who are in denial and they might not be willing to work with us and the child is probably going to be at a loss there so that is where when we see that there is this there is this inconsistency between what we are saying or what the parents are thinking that is when we insist on a diagnosis otherwise i think if i know these are some of the presenting characteristics i can help the family to use a certain set of strategies to help the child so what we are realizing is that now we're just focusing on the child when we are taking the child for therapy and working on the child but on the other hand there's so much more importance that needs to go into how a parent responds to the child so say for example communication is one of the areas that is affected when you have autism and very young people are the ones who are highly you know their communication is what seems to be highly affected as they grow up we see changes happening and they're picking up on communication they're picking up on language and they're getting better at it but when they are really young it's really hard for them they don't pick up language they don't comprehend language like the way typically developing children do so i tell families you know like small things okay you can continue to talk to your child i'm not saying don't st- stop talking to your child but when you're talking to your child like say okay it's time to go to the playground now let's go to the playground but when you say that also show his little shoes mm-hmm. 
so that he sees the shoes and he knows, okay, I'm going to the playground. If the child is struggling with language, there is also some visual that the child can relate to. So children do that. So they are um, basing a lot of their understanding of the environment on the visuals around them because they are not able to comprehend a lot of the language that is happening, right? So I keep telling parents that we are so used to parenting typical children because that's how we were parented and that is how we've seen our friends parenting their kids. But that style of parenting might not work for your neurodivergent child. So we need to switch, we need to make changes in the way we are parenting. How some of these little ones tend to think is like, so say for example, I drink milk in the morning, my mom drives me to school and then I, I'm at school, my mom picks me up, I come home, I eat lunch, I watch TV, I take a nap. So this is my routine, right? So this is how it should be every day. Now, if there is a small change in something, like in the morning, mommy gave me orange juice instead of milk. Now my anxiety has shot up because it's not milk. Now, does that mean I'm not going to school? Does that mean she will not pick me up from school? Does that mean I will not get to watch TV? You know, it's like a domino effect. So for them, everything is just dependent on that routine. So the moment you take that dependence on that routine and put it on a schedule, then they start depending on that schedule. And on that schedule, you can change anything and they know that whatever is put there is going to happen. So this is all coming from the some of these characteristics of autism that, you know, we have seen, which include sequencing, which include, you know, not understanding what people are telling them using language. So for a typically developing child, I can tell them, see, we're not stopping at the grocery store today because there is an important meeting. Mommy has to take it. So we need to go home directly from school. A typically developing child might get it. They may not accept it, but they probably might get it. But an autistic child, the chances of him getting it just through the verbal input is much lower. And that's when a lot of tantrums can happen. When we also substitute or support the verbal inputs with visuals, it seems to help. So these are some strategies that we try to train both parents and teachers in helping supporting children who are autistic. So when a child is not speaking, some of us professionals, we step in and we suggest that let's think about an alternate mode of communication. It could be like a picture communication system. It could be typing if the child can spell words. It could be writing if the child is, you know, comfortable with writing. So these are all different forms of communication. But, but there is a lot of resistance from families because all families want their child to eventually speak. And through total communication, that's what we're trying to do. Like every person has the right to communicate and how they communicate is up to them. They can communicate through any different modality, but their communication has to be counted. It has to be included, right? Now, if you walk into a restaurant, you say your order. It is speech again that is what is used. Is there another way to order your food? So that's what we're trying to do, you know, can we bring in other forms of communication also so that people who do not speak, do not use speech as a way of communicating are also feel included.
So that's what we're trying to get at through total communication. There are a lot of children who have what we call echolalia. Echolalia ends where you basically repeat. And it could be immediate echolalia, it could be delayed echolalia. Immediate echolalia would be, wear your shoes, let's go to the playground. Wear your shoes, let's go to the playground, you know. And that's how they would probably be wearing the shoes. And delayed echolalia would be maybe on the playground he says, you know, wear your shoes, let's go to the playground. Or he may narrate some of the dialogues from a movie that he is fond of. So this that's delayed echolalia. So we see a lot of children who only use echolalia. That is their speech. And we've also seen children who communicate through echolalia. Even today, a lot of, lot of therapists and families try to stop children from using echolalia. But we know that echolalia also serves a function for these children. So a friend of mine who is a young one has autism, he is a huge fan of Cards movie and Planes movie. And to the point that he can tell you every last technician on each of those movies. Like you ask him who did sound effects, he can tell you who did that. So to that extent. So he knows the movie inside out. And, you know, he even, the only thing he sketches are cards. You know, he just draws cards and colors and that's all he does. So he's obsessed with the Cars movie. So he does, he uses a lot of the dialogues from the Cars movie when he speaks. So there was this one time when I met her on the road and then she was on her on her scooty with him sitting behind. And she stopped to talk to me. And she's just going on talking to me. After a point, he started saying, Bye-bye, Tometer. So basically, it was a dialogue that somebody was saying. All he's trying to say is that, I think it's time to leave and say bye to this lady. So, but he uses the dialogue from that movie to communicate that. Because he doesn't have scripts of his own to use to tell his mother that I'm done, let's leave. So his mom is used to this. And his mom gets it. His mom's like, huh, I think he wants to leave now. So I think we'll go. I know of a lot of children. They, they would use a dialogue that is, that is appropriate for the situation. <laughs> but it is not their own script. It is a script from a movie. So as I said, in all-inclusive, we are focusing a lot on the environment, right? So we don't directly work with the individuals. We work with parents, teachers, schools, employers. So basically, the environment in which the child is going to be or the person is going to be. So sexuality education is also something similar. We work mostly with the parents or the teachers. What we realize is that, especially for neurodivergent individuals, sexuality becomes a huge challenge for families. A lot of families want to believe that, you know, this is not... This is not going to be an issue because for the longest time we used to think of people with disabilities or neurodivergent people to be asexual. And, you know, we're not even going to think about that, which is not true. I mean, we know there is as much diversity in sexuality as you see in the typical population. That is how they come to us. So it is a lot of the people, um, like the way they think about sexuality is still very closed. And it is very important for us to kind of open them up to sexual development in children, what is normal when it comes to sexual behaviors and what are some of the spectrum on the sexuality that we need to consider. It could be sexual orientation, even um, sexual identity. A lot of these topics are being covered in that. But we, we take the families very slowly through those because some of them are not even open to 
some of the aspects of heterosexual relationships that they can't even think about something, you know, uh, like homosexuality or trans situations. And those are all like very foreign to them. So we slowly take them through those. But initially, it is about breaking that taboo. Initially, it is about breaking their own inhibitions about it so that we can start having these conversations with them and then help them look at what their child is going through. I want to see more and more, you know, schools having a neurodiverse population. Everybody in the same classroom, right? I want to see more and more people coming into mainstream spaces and communicating in whatever way they are comfortable with and others are accepting of that. I want to see more and more neurodiverse people in your regular spaces as employees or, you know, as staff staff persons. I, I'm a very optimistic person. I, I ride out hope. I think it, it is happening and I think we will, we will get there sooner or later for sure. And that is because there is a lot more services that are available in India now. There is a lot more flexibility and choice when it comes to families as in what they want for their child. And this was not the case 10 years ago when I started practicing. So I know for a fact that things are improving and and I know it would keep on improving. I'm pretty sure whatever we are hoping for, we will get there. Um, maybe not as soon as we want it to be, but I'm sure we will get In this series, we delved into the incredible stories of individuals who have fearlessly opened up about their journeys. We've invested considerable time in engaging with our subjects, fostering meaningful interactions that bring their experiences to life. Now we want to hear from you, our valued listeners. How has the series affected you? Has it ignited a desire for change within you? We are definitely eager to learn about the impact it has had on your emotions. If you identify as neurodivergent or have a child who is neurodivergent or autistic, we especially encourage you to share your own trials and successes with us. Your unique perspective is definitely very vital to this conversation. So get in touch with us at podcast at the rate newsreel.asia. That's podcast with an S at newsreel.asia. So until our next episode, farewell and take care.